Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Break Some Dishes. We are your hosts, Berta Alexander and John Strasner. We have been having great conversations with some amazing people. I've learned so much. It seems we've been going down a few rabbit holes, though. First, it was ocean plastic, and now we are circling the wagons around embodied carbon. Lisa Conway on our show a few episodes back said it was one of her favorite subjects. I think it might be today's guests as well. I hadn't heard of embodied carbon until this year, to be honest. I know I'm behind here, but I'm trying to catch up fast, as I feel like we all need to do. And we need to figure out what to do with this so-called villain. In the architecture, design, and construction industry, carbon is a big deal. Who knew that there's operational carbon, what comes from the energy a building puts out to operate and function? And Amanda, you might, I might get some of these details wrong, and I'm sure you'll give us a little education on embodied carbon. So to keep the lights on, heat the build, heat and cool the building and so forth. And then there's a body carbon, what the materials that the building is made of, the glass, the concrete and so forth, the carbon that it takes to make it and get built, gets built into the materials and then thus embodied. And then they age and release that carbon slowly back into the atmosphere. Embodied carbon in buildings is a huge contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And we have to start rethinking the way we construct our environment now. We are going to talk about that and so much more. Maybe we'll even talk about plastic. Who knows? John, would you like to introduce our guest today? Thank you, Verda. (laughs) Amanda Kaminsky is our guest today. Amanda founded Building Product Ecosystems in 2014 as a public-private partnership with the New School, City University of New York, Healthy Building Network, and Videris. This is serious company to keep and shows us just how impactful Amanda's company is. Building Product Ecosystems is now an independent LLC and is collaborating with a diverse portfolio of partners to divert some of our most copious building materials from the landfill and into a closed-loop economy. This is really interesting when you think about the corporate landscape and how much concrete uh, is involved in that and how much drywall or gypsum board is involved in that. And just to think about the impact on our planet, if we mindlessly throw this stuff into landfills. And so what's really cool is Amanda's organization addresses this and really tries to divert this material. So I'm super excited uh, to talk with Amanda today. And um, let's get going, man. Let's break some damn dishes. Thanks again, Verda and Amanda. Welcome. All right. Okay. So I guess I would love to just start with how, how you got started and your beginnings. And you were in the, you studied architecture, but it sounds like you went pretty much directly into cons- the construction side of it. And, but then at the same time, you're also working with recycling programs and things like that. Why don't you walk us through your, your background and how that got you to where you are now? Sure. So, uh, yeah, you know, it was sort of in some ways accidental that I got um, started on the construction side. I was working for a really great architect in lower Manhattan um, who fell ill. He um, got cancer and he was unable. He normally would have been the one to go out to construction sites to manage and oversee uh, the trades. 
and um, he was unable. Um, and so I kind of got thrown out there and I was terrified because I didn't know what I was doing, really. I mean, this, I was a, you know, second year in my second year of practicing and um, just felt like I needed to know a whole lot more before I started telling other people what to do. And so I was very frank with the the folks on the construction site about, um, you know, hey, I know where we're trying to get to here, but frankly, I don't know the um, the way to get there and the right uh, detailing. And the guys on the construction site kind of looked at me like, and I was like, oh man, this is just not going well. And they actually, we just started to have a lot of conversations. They're like, you know what? There's not a lot of architects that admit what they don't know. <laughs> and so uh, for me, that was a really great early education on how important it is to admit what you don't know in order to start knowing more, uh, because I learned so much um, out in the field during that year, year and a half. And I really fell in love with the process of uh, putting materials together out there. And, um, you, you know, I think um, that that's where I started to feel like that's uh, maybe that was maybe more of a, a relevant role for me because I really enjoyed uh, kind of making those decisions out in the field and seeing how things worked and collaborating with the the folks in the field. So, yeah, that's kind of how I initially got involved uh, more on the construction side of things. And then, you know, eventually a couple of years later, got into a role where I, I was involved with managing work in the in in the field on the construction site. Well, you you kind of answered my second question because I was going to ask you about, you mentioned this when we talked a couple weeks ago that you admitting what you don't know. You, you said that once and you said it again. I think it must be your motto. <laughs> it's important. Um, and so, and now I understand because you said if you if you could admit what you don't know, then you can start learning. Yeah, and it's I, never ending. It really is never ending, and I um, I emphasize this to my kids all the time because I think people are very frequently, whether you're in meetings or whether you're in a classroom, scared to speak up and raise your hand and ask a question. But my, <laughs> it's funny. I did take my husband's name when I got married. My initials are now A S K, and every my family just thinks it's hilarious because I was like one of those really annoying Y kids all the time growing up. I feel like I'm much better at asking questions than knowing answers still. And I don't know if that'll ever change, but, <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. Now I think you, uh, you mentioned also um, that you had a, an epiphany moment when you were standing in front of a landfill one day. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't even know. There's just so many moments where I feel like that happens <laughs> all the time. I think just in all the different realms that, that I've been involved with, you know, whether it's uh, at a landfill, at a recycling facility, or on a construction site, or in a recycling back of house room in one of uh, the buildings that we're working with, you know, I think just really understanding where so many of our resources are going and that it's really bad economics, really bad for our environment, really bad socially. It's just, it's not, it doesn't really make sense in any realm to be working the way we're working. Everyone's just been, I think, very, I think we're being very impatient and not, I don't know, not so willing to work through the logistics that it takes to get to smarter processes, you know? So it's interesting how as a society, we just shifted and didn't even realize it going from like the fifties and sixties where we recycled and reused everything. And we, you know, we ate at home, we cooked everything that was in the cupboards and going to this just disposable culture, take out food and instant gratification. It's, it's interesting how 
things shift and you don't even realize it. I think that Verda, that's a good, that's a good, I like that observation. And I I would almost say that the, the invention of plastic probably set us on that path, right? Yeah. Because that's when we were, we're talking about plastic. plastic. We're only 15 minutes in and we're talking about plastic. Damn it. Well, it's just that, you know, plastic has created a lot of the problems that we're working on resolving. And I think in the process of resolving some of those problems, you learn other things that help you look at materials differently, right? I, I honestly, I, I want to hear what you, you have to say about concrete, because before I really started to get involved in the um, the environmental movement, so to speak, you know, it never occurred to me that concrete was such a problem. Yeah. Well, where should I start here? Geez. So yeah, we, you know, the, the way that we started to look at when I was working for a large developer in New York City, the way that we started to look at where where the biggest improvements were really needed is just looking at the highest volume of materials that were being purchased and installed. And so concrete is a is definitely one of those. And, you know, it's necessary for infrastructure work like sidewalks and roads, but also for uh, structural applications like buildings. And so one of the big challenges that we were seeing, you know, even going back like 10 years ago, was that in order to make lower carbon concrete, lower embodied carbon concrete at that point, we were, you know, really looking a lot at replacing as much of the cement content as possible, given cement is responsible for so much of the embodied carbon impact of concrete. And why is that? Uh, in the uh, the making of the cement, um, it's a very energy intensive process, and so it it's responsible for a real a, a, an outsized proportion of that impact as compared with the rest of the the concrete components. So we were looking at replacing cement with fly ash with slag, and there were starting to be some fly ash shortages, and not because at that point there was so much in the way of people moving away from coal fired power. But because, you know, we went through a couple of heating seasons that were quite warm and therefore there wasn't wow. enough power generation. Yeah. And you know, I'd, I'd be at the, the concrete batching facility and everybody would be scrambling and I'd say, hey, what's going on here? And they, you know, they had these uh, pre-approved mix designs that included fly ash and they couldn't supply all of the components of those mixed designs. So then they would have to go through and get new mixed designs approved. Um, and it really caused a lot of the, a lot of projects and a lot of that supply chain to just kind of go berserk, you know? So, so explain fly ash real quick. That is yeah, that's the sure. material that comes from the inside of the smokestacks of a yeah. coal-fired plant? So it's a component. Of, yeah, it's a byproduct of coal-fired power generation and you know, generally speaking, it, it makes well-performing uh, concrete and it helps to uh, replace a, a large, you know, you generally speaking, people might use up to 25% of, of the cement in a concrete mix with fly ash. So it can, it can help a lot on that front, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of folks that have a problem with some of the you know, sourcing material from fossil fuel industry. Also, you know, that that there's money then that gets paid to the fossil fuel industry for that material. There's also heavy metal content in fly ash. It varies depending on uh, the source of the coal, but but it's consistently you know higher than it, it, it increases the heavy metal loading in concrete. 
it gets locked up in the concrete from what from what studies are you know show. But there's a lot of concern that if you go to drill through concrete to install a pipe later on, or if you go to uh, finish the surface of that concrete to make it, you know, the um, the final finished surface of the space, that that grinding and the dust could potentially release some of that heavy metal. And then also when you go to demolish eventually. So it seems like I think for some people, it's like kicking the can down the road, kicking that heavy metal burden down the road then for somebody mm. else to have to deal yeah, with somebody else's problem. Well, and very frequently the the workers that are managing the material, communities where that material might get um, landfilled, or if we can increase eventually our use of recycled concrete in new new concrete applications for aggregate, is that burden being passed to that usage? And so, mm-hmm. yeah, so there's a lot of, but now, like now we're at a place where we actually are, you know, that we have our supply of flash is continuously diminishing, not necessarily for always for environmental reasons, but because of just the economics of uh, coal-fired power. And so it's become less contentious, I would say, uh, that we really need to be looking at other ways of making concrete because it's just a logistics question of supply and demand and there's not enough of the material anymore and there's going to be less and less. Yeah, I love the name of your company, building product ecosystems, because it tells us that products are part of a larger system, not just, you can't just look at them in a silo. Mm-hmm. So tell us about your company. And, and, and then this is where you developed a little bit this program with glass and concrete. Yeah. Yeah. So actually it started off as a public private partnership with a number of different entities in New York city. And so the Durst organization, city university of New York, the new school, Healthy Building Network and Vidaris. And so those folks came together to really initiate an ongoing, not just dialogue, but a very action-based group that would convene regularly to bring together government folks, recycling folks, manufacturers, builders, building owners, and designers, and also academia in order to make some of these changes that we were trying to, I think I was being a little simple-minded at first, and I was just going directly just to the manufacturer and saying, hey, we need some of these changes to be made. And we realized really quickly that it was far more complex than just a dialogue between a a building owner and a manufacturer, that a, a whole host of other entities needed to be involved to really make the kind of scaled and lasting changes that we were asking for. So it then evolved into needing to be an independent entity. And so uh, it, about six, five or six years ago, we established it as a, an LLC. And so it's really kind of collaborative consulting amongst all these folks, fundamentally rooted in transparency and open source, you know, sharing information on piloting back with the group. So there's no proprietary information because we, I mean, everybody that participates understands that the way that we're going to expedite these changes is by sharing information and experience and piloting. Piloting is a huge part of what we do. Talk about that because yeah. I think a lot of people don't know what you mean by piloting. Oh, sure. So, you know, we, we first, you know, use very transparent information on material health and ecosystem considerations and impacts and then posit, you know, what might be the solution set. And then we work with academia to kind of do some testing, you know, if there's any kind of structural considerations, we do some performance testing to make sure we're not going to be causing any new problems, but really just solving for the existing problems that exist right now. 
And so then we partner with building owners and their teams and everybody else that needs to be involved and get out into the field and actually do concrete pours or work on the closed loop recycling models that we're, we've projected are going to make sense. And so it takes sometimes a few rounds of doing that piloting, actually always a few rounds of that piloting to then understand, okay, what are the additional kind of infrastructure challenges to making this work for many more people at broader scale? Yeah, and I can't imagine they're going to let you mess around with the formula of concrete. Well, we're really careful. Yeah, we, we're really careful. And we engage the, you know, the manufacturers who have a, a ton of experience in this work and academia as needed to do any any testing. And the other really important part of this is, you know, as we as we work through some of these pilots, we then establish any new codes and standards or evolve existing codes and standards in order to quality control what we're working with so that engineers feel comfortable ensuring that the materials, especially when we're involving new materials like glass, that, you know, they are going to feel cool with specifying that uh, because that's a lot that can be a lot of liability. Right. So we want to be really careful. So, yeah. So that's kind of we use that piloting, at the, first of all, the transparent information and then piloting and then, you know, sharing back with the group and then standardization to then get to a place where scaling can happen. It's a crazy, it's a crazy place to try to um, experiment with, with formula changes and think, I was thinking about what was it, the place, was it in New Orleans last year that just collapsed? They were building that building and it just all came down, which was a concrete problem, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 So you have to be so careful and it's, you know, there's a, Ideally, what you you know what we're working with, whether we're looking at uh, carbon reduction te- technologies or products or product or you know systems that are going to be uptaking uh, recycled materials. Ideally, when we're doing this, we're also improving the for the core performance and the reason for being for that material when it's not just a filler, right? And so that's really important then to look at, okay, what are the characteristics? How finely do we have to grind the material? What are the what contamination levels are do we have to get down to to make it acceptable for cycling, you know, back into another material or into the same material? And all of these things come down to communication and relationships and trust. And so these, you know, I was never excited to get involved with standardization because it seemed so I'm like, oh God, standards and codes. Like it's so, but it's actually, it's actually, it's been, I've learned so much through it because you have to really understand the in- intricacies of not only the material that you're kind of creating a standard for, but how it fits into the system of uh, how it's going to be used. And so, you know, there's a, there's kind of a technical aspect to it. There's a social aspect to it, but every, throughout the whole thing, it just kind of keeps improving, you know, trust, I think. Yeah. I, I feel like um, some of the buzzwords that we're getting from all of, all of you, all, all of you that we've been interviewing that have been doing these great programs is open source, transparency, and now piloting. I think that's a good one to add in there. I was actually researching separately this, um, the new schools, Healthy Materials Collaborative, super yep. great. I mean, it's an amazing initiative. And I love that, that the information is just is there for anyone to, to utilize. Now, did you, did you get into this, the, the, the building product ecosystems 
through thinking about recycling or thinking about healthy materials first? Or yeah, it's such a good question because um, I think everybody thinks that I've been uh, working on recycling from the start, but it really did originate through thinking about health. And that I, I was educated by some trades workers on one of our construction sites at one point while I was expecting uh, my first daughter. And they told me that I shouldn't be out on the construction site when I was pregnant. And I was like, why? What are you doing? And, you know, it, I, it, and then they were there, but they were there without any kind of protection, respiratory protection or anything. And it didn't make sense to me. I mean, I get it. You know, uh, they were concerned about my unborn fetus at the time, but it it really was enlightening to me. I learned so much walking around job sites, and I think my older daughter's fine still. So far, I think. Well, <laughs> hey, believe it or not, you know, we 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 give birth to babies that are pre polluted. We know this. Yeah, no, it's um, it is true. Yeah, and, and I joke about it, and I shouldn't, but it's yeah. yeah. But what about these people on these construction sites all the time too? Yes. Exactly. Well, I th- and I want to talk about that for one second because I'm I'm really curious about what motivates you, right? Because you're you're doing a lot, and I think there's a lot of implications to what you do. But when we look at toxicity and we look at the use of toxic materials in the building environment, we're so comfortable making things with PVC. We're so comfortable bringing asbestos back into the construction industry. We're so comfortable with it. And there's been no federal regulations with any teeth that are protecting us. But we all assume that somebody's protecting us. And there's exposure at multiple levels, right? So there's exposure to the toxin when you dig it up. There's exposure to the toxin when you transport it to a factory. There's an exposure to the toxin in the factory. There's an exposure to the toxin when you install it on site. And then there's constant exposure when you're using it and it's off gassing and it's so like, that's a lot, right? Yeah. But what motivates you? You get up every morning and it's like, are you thinking about that? What What are you thinking about? Yeah. I mean, I, my, our overall drive uh, at building product ecosystems is whole system health. And so that is a big, there's a big list of uh, boxes to check when you're looking at whole system health, like really, really uh, the whole, every, every stage of all those touch points. Right. And so it's the people at all of those different points in the overall process. And, you know, kind of getting back to the question about did, you know, it was I inspired to get into this work by, you know, through health or through recycling it seems to me that it's pretty hard to start to focus on recycling if you're not first going to start uh, to focus on health, because if you're trying to recycle or cycle materials that are toxic, it's not going to work well. Uh, some, you know, it happens sometimes, but it's not going to be able to happen in perpetuity um, if, you know, if we're dealing with toxins. And so, you know, it's the people at all these stages that for me is a motivator and working towards really eliminating toxicity in all these places, really through transparency fundamentally. And I, you know, I, I, you brought up uh, federal regulation. I haven't in my time so far been able to rely upon effective federal reg- regulation. I, I used to think that that was more viable. And I hope at some point it's it becomes more viable again, uh, because it makes things easier for certain. Uh, you know, I see other countries around the world where 
that's happening. And it just makes for a more cohesive overall system that allows people to focus their time on, on, other, on, on other things and making other progress. But what I've found is that, you know, one of the one of the standards that I was able to be involved with with a bunch of other folks was the development of the health product declaration. And that is really very, very simply a a document for reporting on the ingredients and the health considerations for those ingredients in in building materials. We talked a little bit about declare labels. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. And so. So health product declarations then enable manufacturers to uh, report on all of these things. And in doing so, what we've also heard from manufacturers is that that they are learning a lot about their own process of making, more so, especially for some more complex materials um, and aspects of their materials that they didn't really know that much about. Managing your supply chain forces you yep. to have conversations with suppliers that you never would have had before. Yep. Fire suppliers that don't want to cooperate. Yeah. Right? All these things. Now, real quickly, so we're looking at something that you know contains a toxic substance. Now, it's probably not banned because I think the uh, EPA has only banned like five, you know, toxic substances. But is it, are you an advocate for recycling or like containing it so it never gets out again? Sorry, what's an, an example? Um... If you've got a material that contains toxin, toxins, and you are considering a process to recycle that or repurpose it, you know, is that better than burying the material somewhere or hiding it or, or putting it somewhere like in concrete where it's contained? I'm thinking about the heavy metals you were talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, my tendency is to uh, consider modes of uh, isolating it. I don't think it makes sense to, I think part of our challenge right now is that uh, frequently uh, toxicity is getting dispersed into so many different endpoints. And that is concerning because it becomes harder to keep track of. And uh, people that are then managing the material don't always have a great understanding of what it contains. We don't have cereal box labels on the side of all of our building materials and far from it. So I think, especially given that a lot of spaces and buildings change hands over time, we still don't have great ways of tracking what's in all these products to be able to manage them appropriately and then cycle them appropriately. So we're working on that, like, you know, on a, on a material level, but then also uh, for whole spaces and whole buildings through deconstructing and reusing these materials. But but people need more information to be able to do that effectively. I find it so interesting. Uh, John and I, in some ways, have opposite ideological positions on this, um, what's more important, uh, John's comes from human scale and looking at products specifically and toxicity in products and trying to remove those. And I come from the interior design world, but as an artist I'm outside with an outsider perspective, and I've, I, I'm seeing interior design really focused on people and, and well, and wellness recently in, in the last decade or so has really become very important. And um, my big wake-up moment was around climate and the planetary health. And I, 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 I've been challenging our in our industry because I feel like we're looking at the people. But if our planet isn't well, then it's kind of like what you were saying. It doesn't matter if we recycle if people if if we're sacrificing human wellness. But uh, but I also feel like 
we, we also need to look at the planet. And I think mm-hmm. you address that in some ways because you talk about whole system health. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, I feel like it has to be all the above. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and and I, it's hard and to I, separate the two. It really is right. hard to separate the two, right? No, it is. And and that's what I, I think is fine. I feel like if John is, has, well, I think it rounds out our podcast in some ways, but I think it doesn't matter which which approach you take as long as you take an approach. But I, I do think that your your programs in some ways address planetary health in a bigger way than, than even though you came from it through. Well, you should, you should, I love the, I love the term too, whole system health. And I think you can apply it. I think what Vert is picking up on is you can apply it anywhere. It's a really good way of looking at a process. So I'm thinking about your firm. Imagine Verta, if you look at whole system health in everything that you you do, and you have your boxes, and your goal is to check as many of those boxes as you can without being self-defeating. And sometimes you start working so hard to check a particular box that you right. yeah. do other it, things that you shouldn't be doing. It's it's similar to the, this, you know, cli- climate justice and social justice. They they they, do, they go hand in hand. And even though you might be on one 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 end of the spectrum or the other, they 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 you're working in for the same towards the same goal. Yeah. Well, and, you know, luckily I've been able to work with, like, I feel like closed loop wallboard recycling is a really good example because there's kind of, there, it, 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 it solves for so many different things and doesn't create new problems because there's something that I didn't know about before I started to dig into it was that when you landfill gypsum wallboard and if the conditions are humid around the landfill. Is this what we call drywall, Amanda? Yep, gypsum okay. wall. There's so many different right. names for it. I gotta, right. keep, I gotta keep us true to the layman. Yeah, no, that's it's uh, it's there's a lot of synonyms for it. Um, sometimes in uh, Europe, I think it's called plasterboard frequently. So it can cause hydrogen sulfide gas uh, whenever there's anaerobic and humid conditions, and that's very common at a lot of our landfills in the U.S. and in many other places as well. And hydrogen sulfide gas is an asthmogen. And so, and it can be much more than just an asthmogen um, at higher levels, but at levels very common around landfills and for the communities around landfills, it is an asthmogen. And so there's a, a even more than throwing away a really great resource that is super cyclable, which is a, a good reason in and of itself. If you do throw it away and it goes into the landfill, it starts to cause all these other problems for landfills and for the communities around these landfills. People that run the landfills are very averse to turning away loads because they get paid tipping fees for the loads. And so they would rather accept the loads and then get into all these different forms of gas capture that are very questionably effective. I think there's a lot of problems with it. So then they end up spending a lot of money on that whenever their hands get slapped for the hydrogen sulfide gas emissions. So it's like, there's so many different drivers. You know, we tend to kind of hone in on these solutions that are just like, come on guys. Like we just, this just makes so much sense. And it's just about, you know, chipping away at helping people understand that it is doable if we just kind of evolve some of our practices on job sites and at in manufacturing. So yeah, so we, well, the, we yeah. The building certifications tend to help here a little bit, you know, diverting from landfill and, you know, you get your credits and stuff, but, but that, yeah. that's really the design team and the building owner. Yeah. With that, not the, not the contractor who's looking to save time and money. 
Yeah, that's the thing. And so it, the communication really, and why I've tended to work a lot like very closely with building owners is because if there's a goal stated at the beginning of a project where, you know, of course, we still want to respect budget and schedule and need to, that alongside of that, we're going to be prioritizing health. And we feel that this is very doable. You know, we're going to be right there beside you to make sure that, you know, if we need to source separate materials on the job site, we're going to make that happen. And yeah, the footprint's tight on a job site, but it's doable. See, we've done it here, here, here. There's no reason we can't do this. And so as long as that communication is clear from the building owner from the start, we've found that other entities on the team are going to work harder to figure out those logistics. And the, the construction management folks are critical to this because so much of so much of making this happen is logistics. It comes down to um, being creative and being really uh, sometimes thinking outside the box on how we make things happen. And every job site's different, just like every person is different. Every job site is its own. This is interesting because it feeds into another conversation John and I love to have is how to move the needle more quickly. We all know we have very few years left to to turn to to turn make a turn for the better in terms of carbon emissions. And what makes it happen faster or I mean, I think we've learned that we probably need a little bit of everything, but individual action, corporate companies doing the right thing or legislation. And there is a, a rule here in California around car, how much carpet needs to be recycled out of every project. And I think that if legislation, if we could put legislation in place uh, requiring that gypsum wallboard drywall gets has to be recycled and can't go to landfills, that would go a long way, right? Yeah. Oh, big time. And, you know, I think there's a, a really important role for uh, for government to play in all of this. What we try to do is set the stage for answering as many questions and modes, kind of like toolkits for how to, how to do it up front and, you know, even creating standards and codes as quickly, but as carefully as we can, so that then we, we have tended to partner a lot with municipalities and to some extent states on having them pilot also alongside of us. We've done that in New York City here with Concrete, where the city is piloting some of the mixes alongside of us, because they have a whole they have a different set of considerations and they procure things differently. Um, so that's important. But then you know, we want them to get comfortable because the way that codes for the city and specifications for the city's procurement evolve over time is by them getting comfortable with it too. And so we like to bring them into our piloting uh, processes. And so we we try to find the folks that um, we know have really progressive minds in not not just wanting to kind of keep doing things the same way that they've been done for 50 years, but who people who really want to utilize the city's procurement power for the benefit of the city's carbon goals, the city's waste reduction goals. And most yeah. cities are starting to have those now. So it's, it's yeah. uh, we're helping them and they're helping us, you know. Well, to, to go back to what Verda, yeah. back to what you were saying too, one of the things that we find with the people that we get a chance to talk to is there's sort of like this, you know, the holy grail of collaboration, right? You have the community, corporate, and then federal regulation. And those are like the three levers that are really effective, right, Verda? We like we talk about that. It seems like it comes up, and I'm yeah, and, and I'm hearing Amanda talk a lot about. She works with obviously the city works. She you work with the municipality. You don't really have a lot, a lot of regulation that helps you, um, and you work with contractors. But what about 
communities. Have you done much in terms of community involvement? Because when I look at what you do, to me, it's all about community health and wellness. But are you able to enlist communities to help you do what you do? We tend to look at what is affecting communities in bad ways and where they don't have a voice on some of these issues, try to educate folks about the problems that they're experiencing as a result of what seems like unrelated procurement. You know, I think people sometimes buy something and then don't realize all of the different impacts that that has. So we try to do a lot with educating on their behalf. So to that extent, yes. I mean, I would love to do more with regard to having deeper engagement in a more organized fashion with some communities, but sometimes the communities that we're working on behalf of don't aren't organized in that way. And so we, we try to help uh, educate on their behalf um, where we can. Yeah, I, I know this doesn't have a lot to do with this, but I was reading an article the other day just about how just disparities in neighborhoods, how garbage is picked up on Fifth Avenue versus in Queens and how that impacts people's lives walking over trash or, yep. you know, your just your, your immediate environment, your immediate neighborhood, not feeling, not feeling welcoming or nice just because of a city's programs. Yep. Well, it's in a very different situation if every neighborhood needed to manage their own debris right there in their neighborhood and had to see yeah. the workings of it, I think, and, and own it. Um, but that doesn't, it's not the case. Um, we'd be in a very different place if that was how things worked, um, you know, so that it was more transparent and visible, the impacts of, of what we're, what we're throwing away and how we're managing these resources. That's true. Yeah. Very true. Transparency. It's all about transparency. It is. This has been really fascinating. And I'm just, I love your, your organization and uh, good luck with everything that you do. Thank you. This has been fun. Yeah. Ditto here, Amanda. Thanks for giving us some of your time today. It was really a pleasure talking with you and, and getting to know a little bit about what you're doing. So keep on keeping on, keep breaking dishes out there. <laughs> and recycling them. Recycle them. Yes, that's right. There's <laughs> stuff in there. All right. That's the way. Right. Take care. You too. The way I'm coming, it ain't fair. Keep it playing. Right.